are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. This is our top five for 2021. Five important things you need to know about five important substances. All right, Paula, you're going to take it away about alcohol. I am taking it away about alcohol. So I'm kind of excited to just have it be you and me, darling. I love having our guests, but it's also fun to just have the OGs, you and me. Okay, so we really wanted to do this episode because coming back to the basics, right? Coming back to what's really important yes. in addiction medicine. And there's so much more to be said than what we're going to say tonight. Okay, let's talk about five things about alcohol. These are just five things we should all remember and take with you into your practice, into your hospital, into your clinic, into your behavioral health practice, whatever it is. Okay, number one, I got these facts from the NIAAA and the NIH mostly, okay? So number one, we just have to come back to looking at what the prevalence is of binge drinking, heavy drinking, and alcohol use disorder, okay? So three different levels of drinking. I'm not even gonna talk about how many people just drink alcohol. I mean, it's like 83% of people drink some kind of alcohol in this country. But let's talk about binge drinking as the first point. What is binge drinking? It is defined as four or more drinks for women or five or more drinks for men in a two-hour period or in a row if you're an adolescent. I always say this to medical students when I go and give my, when, when I used to do addiction talks for them or, or interest group talks, and they would all just laugh, you know, because that means that most of them are binge drinking on a really regular basis. If you need to think about what this definition is when you're seeing your patients, that's it. Four or more drinks for women, so four standard drinks, which is either 12 ounces of beer, one and a half ounces of hard liquor, or four ounces of wine, four of those for women, five for men in a row or in two hours. That's binge drinking episode. How many people have did that in 2019 in the past month, measured in a month, 25.8% of the Americans. Okay. So over a quarter of people met the definition for binge drinking. That's quite a lot. What about heavy alcohol use? Heavy alcohol use and what is that definition? I'll go over that in point number two. 6.3% of the population engage in heavy alcohol use. And that's defined as more than three drinks a day or seven drinks a week for women, or more than four drinks a day for men, or 14 drinks total a week for men. Okay? So that's just heavy alcohol use. We're not talking about a substance use disorder. We're just talking about is someone drinking too heavily? This is the person who has two glasses of wine plus a cocktail at night if they're a lady. That's heavy drinking. That's considered risky drinking, right? Or if they have a cumulative seven drinks a week. So they have two drinks on a Friday, three drinks on a Saturday, and one more drink two nights a week, they meet criteria for heavy drinking. Now, those recommendations for what is safe drinking is actually going to change coming up and men are going to be put in the same category as women. So that's coming up. Okay, last point. A lot of our patients will now be in that risky heavy drinking category. You're, exactly. So let's review. Binge drinking, about a quarter of the population in 2019. And that's four or more drinks for men, five or more for women. Excuse me, four or more for women, five or more for men. About 6% of people heavy alcohol use. Now, what about alcohol use disorder? 5.3% of the population. One in 20 people 
meet criteria for alcohol use disorder. Now, what about since COVID? COVID-19 has dramatically increased alcohol use. We see a 54% increase in alcohol sales and a 75% of Americans report drinking more and about 25% of Americans are drinking to deal with pandemic-related stress. There are some really distressing statistics coming out surrounding alcohol use during the pandemic. Okay, so, okay, point number three for alcohol. Only 7.3% of adults who have alcohol use disorder in the past year received any treatment for their alcohol use disorder. Fewer men than women access treatment out of that 7%. And less than 4% of people with alcohol use disorder were prescribed an FDA-approved medication for their disorder. That is despicable. So when you see patients with alcohol use disorder, think about treatment for them, referring them to treatment, and offering them medications for their alcohol use disorder, which may make a difference. They may not accept it, but you need to offer it. Point number four, people with alcohol use disorder are likely to present to medical care for a medical problem associated with their alcohol use, not specifically for drinking too much. So be aware of that. They don't necessarily come in and say, doc, I'm drinking too much. They come in with a GI bleed, with falls, with confusion, with liver disease, with other issues. And you need to recognize that alcohol is the underlying driver, right? People with alcohol use disorder die 20 years younger than anyone else. It is one of the most common causes of death in this country. So that's something to remember. That's number four. People with alcohol use present for medical care for other reasons. One of the most important things you'll see, especially in primary care, is hypertension. Do not miss your hypertensive patients. Screen them for alcohol use. Number five, last thing, I can't believe how many women, especially, I have to say, I'm going to profile women. Maybe it's because I predominantly have a female practice. Women in their 30 to 50 year old range come in. They've been referred by their gynecologist for high blood pressure. They do a little bit of a substance history and they're drinking four or five drinks a night. That will drive up blood pressure for sure. Okay, number five, last point I wanted to, and this, these are just things I've chosen, so it doesn't necessarily mean they're, they are the most important things about alcohol, but number five, treatment options. Remember these three main categories of options for treatment for your alcohol patients. Number one, behavioral options. You can refer them for behavioral treatment. This can look like outpatient treatment with a therapist. It could be intensive outpatient where they go several times a week for three hours in a group setting and with individual therapy for eight weeks. Very effective. They get mutual help with that and they typically are monitored and incentivized. They learn all kinds of coping skills and they have a lot of alumni support when they finish that program. Or they could go to residential treatment. Next kind of treatment option, mutual support groups, aka AA. AA has amazing data to back it up. It really does work. It has some of the best data to support ongoing sobriety at five years. We covered AA in a previous episode from a very good paper that was published in 2020. Has excellent data to support it. A lot of patients are resistant to it, but encourage it anyway. Some people will take it up and actually it will save their lives. Third treatment option, medications. We have three FDA approved medications, naltrexone, acamprosate, and disulfiram. We also have off-label medications that are effective. They have good NNTs, much better than typical medications we use in medicine, such as statins and SSRIs. Those would be gabapentin and topiramate. There are other medications that I'm not even listing here but do not forget treatment. Detox is not 
treatment. When people come into the hospital and you give them Librium, when you, they come into the emergency room and you give them a prescription, that is not treatment. That does not do much for them other than a temporary Band-Aid. Treatment is chronic, ongoing. It does not occur in acute crisis settings, needs to be managed like any other chronic condition, and you expect a relapsing and hopefully remitting course for this devastating disease. So there you go. And Prevalence of binge you drinking. you can combine treatment. You can yes, combine yes, thank you. behavioral support groups and medications. We do it every day and it Thank works. you. Exactly. That's it. So remember high prevalence of all the spectrums of drinking, whether it's binge drinking, heavy drinking, or alcohol use disorder. There's very low uptake of treatment in this population. Only 7% of people receive treatment. 4% were prescribed a medication. People will often present to medical care for another reason, a medical reason for their alcohol use, not the alcohol use specifically. So be alert for that. And then treatment options do exist. Be aware of them. Refer out to them and follow up just like you would diabetes, just like you would asthma, and be that person that provide that kind of care. Don't just ignore it. That is all I have to say right now about alcohol. That was fantastic. Thanks, Paula. Opiates. So this comes from SAMHSA. And then on the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, so NASDA, in 2020, an estimated 2.7 million people aged 12 and older in the U.S., had an opiate use disorder in the past 12 months. That includes 2.3 million people with a prescription opiate use disorder. Don't profile your patients thinking that when we talk about opiate use disorder, we're only thinking heroin. This is this can be your little old granny can have an opiate use disorder. And this is not uncommon. People that this person keeps falling, dementia, right, Paula? Yes. And you know, let me tell you, people are just as likely to die from their prescription opioids as they are from heroin. It is not a lesser addiction. Their lives are just as likely to be ruined from their prescription addiction than they are from a street opioid addiction. So try not to stratify it and reduce the risk in your head because that's very slippery slope for providers to do. You need to make sure you give just as much support and risk you know, mitigation and follow-up for patients who have a prescription opioid use disorder as you do an illicit opioid use disorder. Absolutely. That is a really, really important point. And then fentanyl. So we talked about this. So this is number one. This is 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. And overdose deaths are on the rise, and they were nearly 12 times higher in 2019 than 2013. 12 times more than 36,000 people died from overdoses involving synthetic opiates in 2019. And that number is expected to be almost double from 2020 and even into 2021. So that is horrible. These are, these, these are horrible. It's incredibly potent. And again, we talked about this. This is clandestine fentanyl. So these are often showing up as pressed pills and showing up in tainted medications on the street. So patients are not aware often that they're getting it. Number two, you do not need to discontinue buprenorphine naloxone for acute pain surgery. This is a common issue that I see. This leads to relapse frequently in patients. You can make dose adjustments you can temporarily increase the dose if you need to while the patient is in the hospital, and you can very effectively manage the patients. Stopping their medication when they come in, for example, like acute endocarditis or something like that, if you have somebody who's stable on buprenorphine, you are just going to put them in withdrawal 
and patients will sign out against medical advice. So don't stop their medication. If they come in for a procedure, continue them on their buprenorphine. You can adjust it. Always make sure you're arranging follow-up too. Number three, for patients who require supervised dosing, take advantage of buprenorphine's long half-life. Consider three times a week dosing. So for example, if you have a patient who's on an eight milligram dose, you can dose them 16 milligrams every other day, and that can make it a little easier for them to have that supervised dosing. Think about some of these different dosing mechanisms for patients who are not doing well with their daily dosing or non-compliance. You have some additional options. You don't need to just discontinue their treatment. I would also advocate for the long-acting injectable buprenorphine, which is just really a game changer in terms of Absolutely. helping with stability and access. So getting people onto the long-acting injectable, there's a brand name, Sublocade, that is given every four weeks. People really, I've seen clinically, people do very well with this medication. And we're waiting for investigational weekly buprenorphine injectable to be released as a medication. It's now still investigational. We've been waiting for it to come out, but that's also another great option for people who don't seem to be doing very well with daily buprenorphine sublingual. It has really helped having that injectable. Use that when you can. Number four, have a compliance monitoring program in place. You need to have some kind of compliance monitoring. These are high-risk patients. You need to know how they're taking their medication, when they're taking medication. And Paul and I are all about objective data. It's not just what the patient tells you. It's what they show you they're doing. So you need urine drug screens, you need medication counts, you need co- no, you need collateral information. Have those in place in your clinic, patient agreements. I'm all about transparency with my patients. Be very, we're very upfront from the very beginning. If you have them already set up in place, it's a lot easier and just be consistent. And it's the same with every patient, right? Number five, remember receptor is 93% saturated at 16 milligrams of buprenorphine. Rarely is a higher dose necessary. If you have patients that are coming in wanting, feeling like they need a higher dose, always make sure you're re- going back to your compliance monitoring, redo- reviewing coping skills, and looking at their other behavior. What are you doing as far as counseling support? And make sure that you're always doing your harm reduction. New patients should always have a prescription for naloxone and updating those yearly. And I would add, make sure you prescribe the dual product. Try to avoid buprenorphine monoproduct. We find that the dual product is less divertible, less abusable. You can give the dual product to pregnant women as well. And yeah, support for naloxone for everybody with an opioid use disorder, especially, well, everybody, but especially those who've had ever had an overdose. Absolutely. Fantastic. Okay. Cannabis. That's me too. I was going to turn okay. over to Paula, but... <laughs> All right, number one, cannabis. This comes from NIDA, and this was a presentation by Dr. Nora Vokal, director of NIDA, to the Subcommittee on Health, Committee on Energy and Commerce, to the U.S. House of Representatives. So that's where some of this information came from. So number one, I think the most important thing to remember here 
is mental health effects associated with cannabis use. There is more and more evidence showing the risk of psychosis and high doses of THC can trigger acute psychotic episodes and one of them and which is one of the main causes for emergency department visits. Most of these episodes tend to be short lasting, but there's is evidence showing some lasting from days to weeks after use. The biggest concern that they're seeing is with serious mental illness and suicides are already on the rise in our country and multiple factors are contributing, but it's also we're seeing a higher use of THC. They're starting to see some correlation here. And that is the number one concern here. There is a correlation between adolescent cannabis use and is associated with an increased risk of suicidal behavior. That is probably the biggest concern. Counsel our patients, particularly when you're doing your pediatric well-child checks on cannabis use and screening for this when you are treating adolescents, particularly for depression. So these are questions that you need to ask. Another issue is the potency. So number two, looking at the route of use. So eating like edibles can increase, you're getting unintentionally high amounts due to its absorption time and you get a delayed effect. So users will inadvertently take more. So they this can lead to some of those psychiatric and cardiac symptoms and leads to some of these increased ER visits that we're seeing. Number three, cannabis use disorder is real and it can lead to severe cases and addiction. The data suggests that nearly 10% of people who use cannabis will become dependent on it. People who use cannabis before the age of 18 are four to seven times more likely to develop a cannabis use disorder. That's four to seven times more likely to develop a cannabis use disorder. The risk of physical dependence, addiction, and other negative consequences increase with the frequent use and exposure to the higher concentrations of THC. And then number four, this is back to adolescents. So adolescents whose brains are undergoing major developmental changes are particularly vulnerable to those negative effects of cannabis. And they have shown that THC exposure during adolescence increases their sensitivity to the rewarding effects of other drugs. That's why those who use at younger age are more vulnerable to the cannabis use disorder and other drug addictions later in life. And they have found that overall youth who you regularly use cannabis have lower academic achievement, higher risk of dropping out of school, and impairment in attention, memory, emotion, and motivation. And number five, and this comes from our talk with Marcella, remember the fetal brain. Remember what she said, what do what are babies' brains made from? They're made from fat right? And so when you have pregnant women who are using cannabis, as the fetal brain grows, the system is affect. This influences how brain cells develop and connect with one another. And it plays a major role in brain cell circuitry, including those important for decision-making mood and response and stress response. It freely crosses the placenta. And so there is fetal exposure. Animal studies have shown in utero exposure to cannabis interferes with proper development and regulation of brain circuitry. In humans, we already know fetal exposure is already associated with 
fetal, fetal growth restriction, lower birth weight, and preterm delivery. Methamphetamines, Paula. Yeah, well, that was really interesting. I really enjoyed that review of on cannabis. It's, there's so much to say about it. And I, so that was great. Thank you so much. Okay, let's do, let's talk about five important things about methamphetamine, which is very important emerging drug. It's been around for a long time, but it's emerging. So number one, okay, information from this was mostly gleaned from the NIH and also my head. Okay, so number one, there is a national rise in methamphetamine use. Okay, we're seeing this steep trend of an increase. And it's interesting, you know, drug use over time, we always just see these kind of fads. In the 80s, we had, you know, high heroin use. And then in the 90s, there was a crack epidemic, etc. We have methamphetamine on the rise. There was a 62% increase in methamphetamine use in the late 2000 and teens. And overdose deaths have tripled from 2015 to 2019. And there's especially two groups of people, uh, populations where methamphetamine use has particularly increased, and that is black populations and younger adults. Uh, Historically, middle-aged white folks were using methamphetamine, and now this is changing. And so this is devastating. We just don't want to see this trend. Number two, as of 2017, we're seeing about 50% of methamphetamine overdoses also involving an opioid. This number is increasing as we see the increasing uh, incidence of fentanyl entering the market, and we're just going to see this more and more. So these are people who primarily use stimulants, but are now adding an opioid into the mix. Either they're adding an opioid as a secondary drug of choice, or they're incidentally becoming exposed to fentanyl, and we're seeing overdose deaths as a result. So I often see patients who are using meth, and they use heroin to come down from meth because they can't sleep, they get agitated. And so you add into all the risks and adverse side effects of methamphetamine, the risks of an opioid opioid like heroin and fentanyl. So remember that that if you see one, you should look for the other and vice versa, actually. Okay, number three, methamphetamine. It really has devastating short-term and long-term physical, mental, and social effects on people. I think a lot of times in society, you know, we concentrate, and rightly so, we concentrate on opioid addiction. We've been very obsessed and involved with the opioid epidemic, and it's and we should, but methamphetamine is actually wrecking people's lives. It is causing skin and soft tissue infections, HIV and hepatitis C acquisition. It's responsible for acute coronary syndrome, stroke, psychosis, violence, accidents, homelessness, and overdose, just to mention a few. Okay, number four, there are no FDA-approved medications for methamphetamine use disorder, unfortunately. However, we do know that contingency management has the best evidence, so there is something that we know helps. And there was an important paper that we actually did a podcast on that was published this year that discusses bupropion high dose with intramuscular naltrexone that may be helpful in reduced methamphetamine use. And and there have been other medications that have been trialed that may be helpful, including topiramate and mirtazapine. Again, the data is kind of equivocal and there's no FDA approval, but it's worth trying and it's worth knowing what you can offer your patients. Okay, number five, refer your meth-using patients. Actually, 
or your substance using patients, but especially meth and heroin opioid using patients to harm reduction programs. Know these programs in your community. These programs have excellent data to show that they minimize and reduce the contraction of serious infections, whether it's hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, and other serious bacterial infections like endocarditis, osteomyelitis, epidural abscesses, etc. Also, people who access syringe exchange are five times more likely to enter substance use treatment than those who don't access these programs. It's sometimes easy to feel hopeless around people who are using methamphetamine. We don't know how to help them. We don't know what to do. Sometimes they may be um, ambivalent or pre-contemplative about their use, and they come into our emergency rooms and they go back out, or we may not see them in primary care, but we encounter them in the judicial system or in the um, DCFS system. The least we can do is to engage with them and compassionately refer them to harm reduction programs, and then to continue to follow up as much as we can because methamphetamine really is a devastating substance that we want to minimize the harms and hopefully engage people to the extent that we can obtain abstinence. That's it for meth. That is fantastic. Can I tell you a win? I actually have a patient I saw today, probably about a year and a half ago, I saw her for the first time pure methamphetamine use disorder. We we tried some medications, but I gave her a naloxone overdose kit because I told her about the fentanyl-laced methamphetamine that was out there. And that actually motivated her enough because it scared her because she'd heard about that as well and was nervous. But that was her motivating factor. So using exactly what you just said, these harm reduction strategies and just opening that door got her engaged enough in treatment that she came back a couple of times and then she was kind of lost to follow up, but showed up today in my clinic and has not used for 10 months. Has had 10 months of sobriety. That's amazing. That's incredible. That's wonderful for her. I'm so happy. Good job. And you know, the other thing I was going to say, don't forget the power of mutual groups like CA and and NA for folks with methamphetamine use because, and also peer support. It really takes someone with lived experience to identify and support and and to help folks who have these use disorders. We cannot underestimate the power of peer support. And if you have access to a peer support program in your community, please do utilize them, refer to them, support them, give them funding, help them with their grant writing, help them with anything you can in terms of utilization, because this is a key access point in terms of warm handoffs and care collaboration, care management, and patients who are involved with peer support do better. This is the truth. So we want to involve them every step of the way, especially, well, for all substances, but it seems like especially for these substances, which are really difficult to get a hold of, they're just so addictive and very hard to get away from. All right, let's talk about nicotine. We have five things about nicotine we all want to know. Take it away. You want to do number one? Sure. Okay. This comes from our talk with Kyle, who taught us all about vaping. Now, inhalation of vaporized THC has been implicated in the outbreak of in e-cigarettes or vaping products associated with lung injury. So, Evali, that was first reported back in June of 2019. Evali results in an acute respiratory illness characterized by respiratory gastrointestinal and then your generalized like fever chills. It resulted in over 2,500 hospitalizations and 55 deaths in just a six-month period. 
That's crazy. Wow. What they found is the majority, at least 40%, were vaping THC, linked it to a vitamin E acetate, which is frequently found as an additive to vape THC, was most closely associated with the Evoli. This stuff may be safe to ingest or apply topically, but when you heat it up and vaporize it, what happens, which is very similar viscosity to the THC, the timing of its appearance as that additive, that's where it came out as being tied to that Evoli outbreak. So really interesting. So interesting. I mean, it just, yeah, it just goes to show we just don't know the safety of these products, right? We just don't know. Absolutely. All right. I love it. Okay. Number two, nicotine at my points are a little bit more basic. Yours was quite sophisticated. Okay. Number two, bring up nicotine cessation really every chance you can with your, with your patients or your clients. You may think, oh man, here we go again. I'm going to harp on nicotine cessation. But remember that most people who smoke or vape or chew really do want to quit. And your advice, your brief intervention may make all the difference, okay? Also, celebrate small wins. When people quit or are attempting to quit or have cut back, make a big deal out of that. Kyle uh, Moore also has talked about that in our podcast, that it really is a huge deal when people are able to quit. Bring it up, keep revisiting it every single time because the harms of, of tobacco and nicotine are just immense, more than any substance combined, right? And this brings me to a bit of a soapbox, and that is all treatment programs, residential programs, should not allow smoking or vaping. This is another whole topic, but it does not make any sense to me that you run a residential program where people can't use heroin or methamphetamine, and yet you allow them to go out on smoke breaks. It does not make sense for multiple reasons is another topic. Okay, number three, people who quit their tobacco or nicotine all at once are more likely to be successful than those who try and taper down. Now, this is an interesting concept because harm reduction approach is to just taper down if you can't quit, right? So you do want to encourage people, look, choose one cigarette a day you can get rid of. Maybe it's not the first one of the day, but do that approach. It's better than nothing. But taking the hard line and just quitting, those guys, those people are more likely to be successful. And that brings us to another point, which is actually opposite to what a lot of people think. And that is quitting nicotine along with other substances at the same time results in better success in both or all of the substances combined. So if you're trying to quit alcohol or heroin and you quit your nicotine at the same time, you're more likely to stay off both, which is contrary to what a lot of people say. And you'll hear pushback. Oh, well, I can't, I have to have my vice. I'm only going to do one thing at a time. I really can't take that on right now. And the stress of quitting alcohol or heroin or cocaine is too overwhelming and people want to keep smoking, right? Don't we see this all the time, Darlene? All the time. It's amazing when you look at what Dr. Volkow and George Kube and all these greats in addiction medicine and addiction science tell us is that you keep using substances like nicotine and cannabis and actually even caffeine. People are going to hate me saying this, but caffeine in excess, you keep the reward slash addiction centers of the brain rolling and rolling and rolling and susceptible to return to use. Now, this is coming from a scientific place. This is not just an opinion. So that There's is- There's a great, if you read Nora Vokal's blog, she has a and we talked about this in our nicotine episode, but she has a great talk on that, that talks about the reinforcing effects on nicotine. Talk to your patients about this, encourage them to quit. Got to get nicotine off the brain. I just phrase it to them. Your chances of long-term sobriety 
are significantly increased if you can get rid of that nicotine. Just do it. I love it. I love it. If only it was that easy, but you're absolutely right. I love the way you phrase that. And it's an addiction psychiatrist in Colorado. She's really amazing. Libby Stout. She she also gives, she's she does a lot of education stuff surrounding auricular acupuncture. And she's run a big program in Colorado for years. She says, you know, she's a big advocate of abstinence from cannabis and nicotine for people in recovery. And she cites studies that, you know, it also interferes with learning. If you continue with these substances, that it interferes with learning and motivation, which is which are integrally connected to the addiction cycle, right? If you look at the ASAM definition, we're getting on it off on a tangent here, but the ASAM definition of addiction is that addiction is a is a disease of the brain's reward, motivation, and learning centers. So if you keep feeding substances, no matter what kind, you kind of derail all of those processes that involve these complicated areas of both the midbrain, you know, the reptilian brain and the mammalian brain. Anyway, so bottom line is advise and support your clients, your patients to quit nicotine as well as everything else. Nicotine replacement therapy, NRT, it increases chances of quitting greatly. You need to offer this stuff and you need to educate your patients and educate yourself on how to do this. It can increase chances by by up to 50 to 60%. So make sure you offer it. Barriers to access should not exist through now governmental supported big tobacco funded programs. And you want to use a combination of products. Use patch plus gum, use patch plus lozenge, etc. Don't underdose do not underdose because people who have very high nicotine tolerance, for example, they smoke more than a pack a day or they use high dose nicotine vape and you underdose them, they're just going to continue to have cravings and withdrawal and they might fail. If you overdose them, obviously they're going to have nausea, jitteriness, insomnia, and they might not feel well. So you want to you want to understand how to dose I and mean, you want to give good instructions on when to apply the patch, if they need to remove it at night, if they can't sleep, and also how to use a short acting nicotine PRN, such as the gum or the lozenge. And if they're using the gum to just do one or two chews and then to park it in their buckle gutter. And that way they get just a little burst of nicotine like they would if they were smoking a cigarette, as opposed to just like chewing on the gum and getting way too much nicotine. So those are some tips. And there's lots of great online free trainings for you if you want to learn more about NRT yourself. That's great. And number five, I think this is really important. E-cigarettes might help people quit cigarettes. That is still under investigation, but the risk of vaping continuation rather than total cessation of nicotine is high. So keep that in mind. The goal should be to always help our patients quit completely. So if you have somebody who is vaping telling you that they're trying to quit, strongly encourage them to quit completely, not to smoke both. Frequently, what we are seeing is patients are smoking and vaping, and we want complete cessation. Again, we want to get rid of that nicotine on the brain, and we want to get them away from these potential risks from the vaping, encourage our patients to get to the complete cessation, help them get to their goal. Just keep being like what Kyle said and what Paula brought up, keeping their champion. Nice. Well, that's it. That's great. So we we covered five substances, five things for each substance. We're going to do a future episode on basic addiction medicine and approach to taking care of a patient with substance use disorder. Really think this is overdue. So I'm really excited to do that. And, you know, if you have questions, you're welcome to email us. We have an email and Darlene, 
she manages that and she sends it to me as well. So we're happy to do that. We got a request for an episode from a physician in Houston, and we will be happy to respond. We're preparing a reply, and that is on low dose initiation buprenorphine, otherwise known as microdosing buprenorphine. And we are really happy to talk about that. So we are coming up, we have an episode on food addiction, which is fascinating. And then we're going to do this taking care of a patient with substance use. What are the basic principles? We have lots of amazing topics for 2022. Thanks for listening to our podcast, sharing it with your learners, sharing it with your colleagues. Give us some feedback. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and give us a shout out. If you have any requests for episodes, we'd be happy to uh, talk about anything you're interested in. Clearly, we just love talking about this stuff, and uh, we're really happy for your listenership. Yes. Thank you. And we hope everyone has a peaceful and happy new year. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.